The scripture lesson for this morning comes from the third chapter of Exodus, verses 1 through 15. Listen for the word of God. (coughs) Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of a, a flame of fire out of a bush. And he looked, and the bush was blazing, and yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why this bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Then God said, Come no closer, but remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it was I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts all be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
On this Labor Day weekend, I want to begin by thanking you for the gift of time away, the gift of vacation. We left Alexandria early on August the 14th and flew to Albuquerque and then drove a couple of hours to Ghost Ranch, a Presbyterian conference center where my wife spent most summers of her childhood on youth retreats led by her clergy father. Five days later, we flew to Boston and then drove five hours north to Swans Island, Maine. We arrived home this past Friday night, 19 days later. To leave the density of Alexandria and the intensity of Washington and to experience in the course of three weeks desert sunset and sunrise, the Big Dipper, over two states, a continent away from one another, the solar eclipse, the vast, unchanging sky, beautiful ocean waters, rocky coastline, and thick forest is a humbling experience. Even with limited access to news and the technology in which it is delivered, and therefore with only incomplete awareness of the ravages that nature was doing to a city where I once lived and served a congregation, I could not help but think how vast this nation's land is and our waters are, how diverse our topography how much our land and seas are uninhabited and in many ways uninhibited and are absolutely silent many parts of America are. The phrase from sea to shining sea kept floating through my mind. I was also taken by the sheer beauty of the people of each location. Native Americans with drums and circle dance. The committed creativity of artists drawn to the desert. Visitors to the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. A reunion of Peace Corps workers from the early 1960s. And then hardworking lobster men and lobster women who have lived their entire lives on one small island in the Atlantic Ocean. I was appreciative of the small but well-tended library in each location. And all of these combined to confer a sense of blessing for which I am grateful to God. A sense of hope concerning God's ultimate care of our world, our nation, and every human being who lives from and beyond sea to shining sea. There is plenty in our world to challenge and undercut that sense of hope. But ultimately, I believe it is well-founded. And for that, I am grateful. Most sermons I have preached this summer have been drawn from the book of Genesis. Between the close of this book and the opening of of Exodus, which follows, over 400 years of human history passes. 
And there is precious little evidence among the people of Israel that God, their God, is anywhere to be found. A new king has arisen over Egypt who does not know his Egyptian history. And therefore doesn't know about the Hebrew slave named Joseph who nearly four centuries earlier had saved the Egyptians from famine by leading them to store food in a time of plenty so that in the, process, in the time of want they would have food and in fact become the breadbasket for the world. This new king doesn't know that in the midst of saving Egypt, Joseph had also saved his own brothers unknowingly. And then had reconciled with them and attributed it all to God, whom Joseph had said was working in the background all along to take his brother's evil intentions and use them for good. And this, all this new Egyptian king knows is that Hebrews are intended to be slaves of Egyptians. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, when the king receives evidence that the Hebrews are multiplying faster than he is comfortable, and they might be able to stage a rebellion or even join an invading army should one occur, he imposes more ruthless work requirements for the 18 or 20 hours a day that they work in brick and mortar. He does so to deprive the Israelites, of time, energy, place, privacy, dignity, and hope for that most sacred and intense human instinct, the desire of one person for another. The king seeks to reduce the population of Hebrew slaves by eliminating anything conducive to the attraction of male to female, female to male, and the offspring that result. But his efforts at zero population growth do not succeed. Children continue to be conceived and infants continue to be born to Hebrew slaves. The king then instructs Hebrew midwives to slay the male infants on the birth stool. But when two midwives, Shipra and Pua, refuse to do so, they are blessed with families of their own. In response, the king then decrees that all the people of Egypt shall be responsible for throwing boy babies born to Hebrews Hebrews in the Nile River. This king thus makes participation, participation in ethnic cleansing a requirement for citizenship. But after a long time, and note the stress on the word long, this particular king dies. He is the only major character in the story who is not named. 
Perhaps sensing an opening, an opening for hope, the people of Israel are finally able to move out of silence and to groan under their slavery, to cry out, out of their slavery. They cry out for help and their cry rises up to God. The narrator of these two chapters ends their Poe-like horror stories with these words. God hears their groaning. God remembers His covenant. God looks upon the Israelites and God takes notice. It has been a long 400 years. Our passage then, chapter 3, opens with an adult named Moses who is keeping watch over the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, in an ancient land, in an adjacent land known as Midian. Now Moses has been introduced to us in the previous chapter. He was one of those Hebrews' babies whose mother hid him for three months, but then when she could hide him no longer, she placed him in a basket on the Nile River. Moses had then been spotted by the daughter of the Egyptian king who had recognized him as a Hebrew baby, but whose sense of empathy overwhelmed and overtook her ethnic identity and her father's orders. And so she ordered him to be drawn out of the water by a servant. And she listened to a bystander who said, let me go and fetch a Hebrew maid to nurse him. The bystander turns out to be Moses' older sister, Miriam, who then retrieves their own mother, Jochebed, to nurse her own son. After all this, the king's daughter then names this baby, I have drawn him out of the water. Which translates to the Hebrew word Moses. Now when we join Moses as an adult and he's tending his father-in-law's flock, Moses sees a bush that is blazing with fire and yet the bush is not consumed by the flames. It burns and it burns and it burns, but it does not burn up. In what turns out to be one of the most faithful moments in human history, Moses stops the sheep he is herding and he says, I must turn aside to look at this great sight. And see why this bush is not burned up. I must turn aside. The next words the next words that the narrator uses are significant. They read when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called out of the bush. Moses, Moses, and Moses answers, here am I. God continues, I have observed the misery of my people. 
I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to send you to Pharaoh to draw them out of the land of Egypt. Although it will take several more turns in the conversation before, my, before Moses finally agrees to this task, his agreement will ultimately lead the people of Israel to institute and celebrate Passover, to cross the Red Sea into the land of Canaan, to move from slavery to freedom, to receive the Ten Commandments, and then later under Joshua to enter the land that long ago has been promised to Abraham and Sarah. All of this happens after Moses turns aside to pay attention to the burning bush. Without his turning aside, these events may never have happened. Or they may have happened in an entirely different way with a whole new set of characters. So thanks for listening so far. What can we make of this story? What does it mean for us? Let me suggest three brief learnings. About this story... Edna St. Vincent Millay has written, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. I've always understood this quatrain to mean that God is present in nearly every place and person in creation. But that in order to experience God's presence, we must keep our eyes open. We must stop and look at the burning bushes we encounter. And then we must be willing to do something entirely out of the ordinary, take off our shoes, lest the presence of God pass us by. I still hold this interpretation to be true. But reading Moses' story this year has led me to take this poem one step further. Even though I am a lifelong Presbyterian who always emphasizes the sovereignty of God, I am intrigued by a concept in our passage that is articulated by Jewish scholars that even though God himself has responded to the cries of human suffering and has come to dwell among his suffering people, God still holds back from acting until one of those people, namely Moses, stops and notices the burning bush. Remember, it is only when Moses stops that God speaks from the bush. It is as if God has confined himself within that burning bush, just as the people of Israel are confined within slavery until someone listens, at which time God will emerge. I know this is different from one of my major themes in preaching and teaching, namely that God is active in the world and that we are called to join God in his activity. But that if we do not answer that call, God will not be deterred. He will still work his purposes out. And I still believe this. 
But I am intrigued and challenged by the idea in this story that perhaps God is going to remain within the burning bush until he finds someone willing to join him in the effort of setting his people free. It is intriguing to think that God may have the power to draw us out of whatever enslaves us. But perhaps God holds back until we are willing to join the effort that he is making. An intriguing thought. This leads to my second and briefer comment. Wordsworth has written famously, the child is father to the man. Wordsworth is saying that every experience we have as a child gives birth to who we become as an adult. The child is father to the man. Think of everything in Moses' childhood that could lead him alone among the passersby to stop at the burning bush. Born into slavery and genocide. Held nursed and hidden by his biological mother, placed by her in a basket on the Nile River, drawn out of the river by the servant of the daughter of the Egyptian king, handed to and held by that daughter, held and nursed again by his biological mother, named by his adoptive royal mother, the daughter of the king, born Hebrew, raised Egyptian, birth mother Hebrew, adopted mother Egyptian. Is there any wonder why Moses may have been uniquely prepared to be the person in whose presence the God of the burning bush would reveal himself and allow himself to be drawn out into the world of speech and action, into the world of deliberation, of liberation and deliverance. Is there any question that nearly every experience of Moses' early life prepared him for the life he would lead in his adulthood and in human history? The child was indeed the father of the man. And this leads to my third learning. A saying from the book of Proverbs is often associated with Moses in ancient Jewish scholarship. It is Proverbs 22.15. Without counsel, plans go wrong. But with many advisors... They succeed. Jewish scholars see this proverb as referring to God as the one who seeks counsel, advice, assistance from Moses in drawing the people of Israel out of slavery and into freedom. These scholars even use the phrase human involvement in salvation to describe the role that Moses plays with God. Now, as a lifelong Presbyterian, I've spent my life saying that salvation is a gift of grace that comes from God alone, and thus I am not entirely comfortable saying in a sermon the words human involvement in salvation. But I will say this. There is something to be said about God 
waiting. Waiting until he has found a Moses before undertaking his massive historical movement of drawing his own people out of slavery and into freedom. Perhaps it's teaching us that God is waiting to find a similar receptivity and even preparedness in us before undertaking the massive movement of drawing us out of whatever slavery confines us into the freedom, even into the salvation that God has in store for us. Perhaps God is waiting for many advisors like you and me with whom God will work to make God's plans succeed. So I started this sermon with a, vast, with a witness to the vastness of land and sea and people of the earth and my renewed sense that God will care for us all. But this story reminds me that we have a role to play in that care. We must become one among God's many advisors that help God's plans succeed. We must have confidence, trust, that everything we've experienced in our lives from childhood forward plays a role in preparing us for this task. The child is indeed the parent to the youth, the young adult, the man, the woman. And when we see that burning bush, we simply must turn aside. See that great sight. Listen to the voice from within it that's calling our name. Amen.